Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I am your host, Casey Tigret. I am an author, pastor, and spiritual director. Uh, this is our second, the second official episode of 2020, uh, the first guest of 2020, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, some of you may know, uh, this past year, I wrote a book called As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. I talk about that in the previous podcast, and this isn't a book plug. I just I want to start here because a lot of the work that I was doing in talking about memories was, what do we do with the past? What do we do with the stuff that's happened that's come before? And inevitably, the work I was doing in that book led me to talk about trauma. The work I do in spiritual formation and in spiritual direction, a lot of times is trying to process trauma, sometimes trauma from childhood, sometimes trauma from last week. And what I know is that as you're listening, there's probably some of us coming into this year who are trying to deal with some trauma, maybe 2019 trauma, maybe it's a holdover trauma that just seems to keep eating at us like a slow dripping faucet. That's why I am so happy to start this year with an interview with my friend, Andy Kolber. Andy is a therapist and a writer and she writes in her new book called Try Softer that comes out, releases today, January 6th. She writes about how we deal with trauma. And instead of saying try harder, she talks about trying softer. And in other words, when people say, you know, this thing from your past, you just need to move on. You just need to get over it. There are actually neuroscience reasons why that no, number one isn't possible. Number two isn't wise. But instead, how do we begin the work of redemption? How do we begin the work of healing? How do we begin the work of dealing with trauma in a way that actually gives us life back instead of produces more guilt and more pain and more shame? So I'm going to stop talking because you guys need to hear from the one and only Colbert. Well, Andy, thank you for being on. I, I really appreciate you taking time to talk today um, about some things that I I think are really critical. I also, so I'm a, a pastor as well as the other things that I do. Um, one of the things I know is that the church is not the greatest space for talking about mental mm. health. Um, do you have a, an idea of why that might be? That, is there something that strikes you that says this is probably why this isn't happening as much? Yeah, starting off with the easy questions. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm saving the hard ones for later. No, no, it's such an important question, and it's it's, it's actually really you know it's so timely. Not that um, this has always been a part of what it means to be human, but I think that um, you know part of it is just that often I think as humans our inclination is to want things to be simple. Um, we want, even just like developmentally, there's a sense in which we want things, especially earlier in any type of development, things to sort of be black and white. You know, for kids, they think more concretely. In faith, we tend to think a little bit more um, polarized as well. And I think the reality, though, is that in any type of growth, what we come to recognize is the nuance that exists in almost everything. And so mental health, I would say, really is belongs within that discussion because there's such a spectrum of what we even mean when we talk about things like mental illness and mental health. Um, you know, I think we can 
we can, someone can not be mentally ill and they can also not be mentally well. You know, there's a sense in which our human flourishing, um, there's a huge spectrum. And so, so much of my work, um, often I am working with folks who don't necessarily identify as having maybe a full, maybe mental illness, but they are also not living from a place of, of holistic health. They are not living out of a place of um, who they sort of experiencing the reality of what they know to be fully true. And so there's this like huge gray area. And, and so going back to your original question, I think it's just such a big topic. And in order, you know, for any of us to, whether I'm a therapist, whether I'm a pastor, whether I'm any type of leader, um, it requires a commitment to such deep work in ourselves to create this space for all types of health. And I think that includes mental health. Yeah. So when we start talking about nuance and living in gray spaces, uh, the just hard and fast facts start to fail. Mm. And so that's why that's part of the reason why I love what we talk about on the podcast when we talk about wisdom. I think mm. wisdom is the thing that guides us through nuance and gray. So uh, I ask every guest the same question, and uh, it's great to see the difference in responses. Mm. And that question is, if, if you were going to begin to define the word wisdom, where would you start? You don't have to do the whole thing, but where, where would be the beginning point for you? Hmm. The thing just from like a, a gut level uh, reaction when I hear that is actually listening, like listening to our experiences, listening to our body, listening to the spirit, listening to each other. And in a sense, paying attention. Um, and so, of course, I can't help but go to the next step. I think from listening, we begin, it helps us to pay attention and then actually begin to embody. Um, but before we can embody, we have to be looking. We have to be paying attention and listening for what exists. And, and I think... I would say I think wisdom begins there. Yeah. Which makes sense for you to say that, oh. just given the work that you do. And it makes sense to, as a definition too, don't get me <laughs> wrong. It's not just yours. But it makes sense that you would, because that's really the, the place where you live. And mm. I agree. I think there's so much about attentiveness that you can't be wise unless you know what's happening mm. or what has happened or what you know, what, what is it that's in the air that's floating around and uh, from a theological perspective and, and all those. Um, so for you, becoming a counselor, becoming a therapist, what is the thing that moved you toward that? What is the, what's the animating story behind why you yeah. chose that way of living and serving and sacrifice? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly been a heck of a journey. Um, I, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a lawyer. When I was an undergrad, I uh, was working or I got a business degree and I just had this sense of I wanted to do something really important and weighty in the world. Um, I think that I, I just 
yeah, there was this sense of like, I felt like there was so much need in the world, but I wasn't sure how to help. And so I wanted to be a social justice lawyer because I kind of saw myself going in and just like, I don't know, just taking care of business or something. Um, but what I came to find over time, first of all, that would not have been a good fit <laughs> for me. For life. No flipping over tables. Yeah, well, and it's not, I mean, I'm a very passionate person, but what I've come to recognize, and, and I'm so grateful for time and experience and, and continued wisdom that has grown, um, so much of that came out of my own story where I had I grew up in a, a highly chaotic and dysfunctional family. And I think there was a sense of justice not being there for me. And I had a lot of unresolved, um, what I would say is little T trauma, like emotional, chronic little T trauma. And so as you know, there are so many parts to that story, but to keep it a little bit more brief, um, as I so continued to pull on this thread of like, what, what's my, what's my calling in the world? Like what God, what do you have for me with the gifts that I have? Um, I didn't go to law school, thank goodness. Um, and I, I went to Denver seminary and got my master's in, in counseling. And during that time, I just had profound, um, just it be, it really began the journey of understanding how much I needed to do my own work to be able to be present for and with other people. And it gave me eyes to see how much pain I had that I had not yet processed in my life. And so there was this reciprocal experience where in order for me to be a even a decent counselor, <laughs> I really needed to do my own work. And so that journey has just unfolded in lots of ways. And I, and I would say it's really become just my vocation. You know, I think the part of the reason I do things like podcasts and now, you know, with the book that I have coming out is because there is this fire in me that says like all of us deserve to know that our stories matter, that we're beloved, um, that we are worth um, the time and the energy and the space to be heard and listened to. And so, you know, obviously I have to be mindful of my own energy and all those things, but I, it's just, it's become such a part of who I am to be able to advocate for those things in any way I can. Um, and so definitely becoming a therapist is just like this outgrowing in a way of my own story outgrowing and i wonder has there been has your work that you've done has there been an effect of that that has brought some redemption to the chaos that you grew up in mm. has some of that been transformed maybe repurposed i don't know the yeah. word you would use for it but has has there been something help you know redemptive mm. that's come out of that in the work that you've done now yeah i mean i think it I've experienced it more like as I have, ex well, so yes, to the, the short answer first is yes, because I think being with people um, as they do some of the deepest, hardest work is, is such a privilege. And it's so like, it, I often use the word, like it's sacred. I mean, it really, 
it honestly feels like church sometimes. Like it's hard to explain. There's particular types of trauma processing that I do too, which we won't necessarily go into here, but there's a sense in which when someone unpacks something that has been in their, one of the most painful parts of their story in your presence, it's, there's a sense in which you can't help but have a little bit of holy awe almost for that experience. And then seeing people, not just, not just witnessing that, but then beginning to see a resolution to the pain, um, which is part of what makes me so excited about the work that I do is, is to see that healing is quite literally possible. That, and obviously there's no, I always want to be careful to say it's a little different for every person, but to see people make progress, um, is profoundly encouraging, you know? Um, but it's also because I have experienced that because I have sat with great therapists. Even I would say for me, um, my marriage has been a huge part of my own, um, healing. Just, you know, there's this idea of, of attachment and, and just the reality that we as people are wired for connection. And the question isn't, um, if we'll be connected, it's how we'll be connected. What is the quality of the attachment? And for me, in the in the family that I grew up in, I experienced um, what is called an insecure attachment. And so that just means that the quality of my attachment did not feel secure. It didn't feel safe. I didn't know truly was someone there for me. It, if things didn't work out, if I had a if I had a tough day, if I was not okay. Um, there was a part of me that thought I really was on my own. And so um, all that to say, you know, with your question, it's, it's like, it is, it is so redemptive to watch people heal. And I think it, that's where the reciprocal element of me doing my own work matters so much too, because it's important that I have a sense of what that feels like in my own body in a way to be able to hold space for people as they progress to those places too. Um, and so I think it, it is such an interesting, sometimes brutal uh, profession, it, but also very, yeah, I mean, just watching people grow and heal is, is just profoundly beautiful. Yeah. The idea of uh, the book that you've written, Try Softer. <laughs> I, I can't, I tried to say it out loud a couple of times and I actually said the other. I said, try, I started saying try harder. Um, try softer. Mm. And how that was such a key piece of advice for you at a very key moment. It, what do you feel like the idea of trying softer? What is it combating? What what is the anti what is it the antithesis of like what's the thing that try softer is really trying to correct or address or transform? Yeah, well, you know, I, this probably won't be surprising for a lot of your listeners, but I mean, we live in a try harder culture, especially you know, we live in a uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you work hard enough, if you push enough. If you just do the right things, um, you'll get it, right? And so there's lots of offshoots of this. There's a sense of like a prosperity gospel that comes off of this. But there's also 
um, from a, a neurobiological standpoint, I, I call this um, white knuckling it. And this is my own term that I've, that I've sort of come to, to coin. But what I mean when I say that is white knuckling it is when we go outside of our, our actual window of tolerance. Like we are leaving a place of just hard work to a place in which we're having to ignore, suppress, minimize, shame um, what we're experiencing, our actual needs or what our body is really going through in order to either meet an expectation or to conform or to maybe sometimes even just survive. You know, from a, from a trauma standpoint, I would say we like white knuckling is a, an adaptive strategy. So if you grow up in a home, for example, where it's not okay to have feelings or where if you complained, what would that mean for you? Or if you said, you know, let's say you're maybe your parents, um, for whatever reason, because of their own experiences or their own trauma, made it so that they parentified you. So as a child, you had to act older than you were, or maybe it wasn't safe to um, say you weren't okay. For all these reasons, we begin to make our outsides look different than our insides. And what happens is it's like that it, you know, you started the podcast with the question of wisdom. Well, our body has a very specific God-given wisdom in it. And when we ignore and suppress and numb and shame that wisdom, the voice gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And what that does is it keeps us from the ability to move through hard things in the way that our body is designed to do. And so try softer what I, the sort of the way I describe that is that we learn to pay compassionate attention to what we're experiencing once again. And so rather than every single hard thing that comes up, we say, yeah, you're right. I gotta be the best. You're right. I'll just ignore my hunger and sleep two hours and, um, make sure that everybody gets what they need and never set a boundary. We say, hmm, What's actually going on with me? You know, we begin to, to cultivate that listening, attentive voice to ourselves. And you, in the, in the chapter about white knuckling, you talk about the two parts, the, the ANS system, mm -hmm. uh, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic parts of the brain, which I, I feel like neuroscience has its own has a deep spirituality of its own mm. in that it deals with our, our wills, drives, and desires. Mm. Like they all, they all swim in the same giant mm. sea. But would you talk about the sympathetic parasympathetic and how that, how that works together for this whole concept of white knuckling? Yeah. So I mentioned that idea of the window of tolerance and the window of tolerance is basically the level of arousal um, of, of like our emotional arousal or really any type of any way that you could think of arousal in which we can essentially stay with it um, without going to a place of either fight or flight or freeze. So the fight or flight is the sympathetic nervous system. And so that is, um, that's where we get, you know, essentially that's hyper arousal, that's fight or flight. And there are some 
Um, you know, basically, depending on the research you look at, there's some other expansion expansions of those types of things. But the idea is, is that we're poised for action. Our body unconsciously decides um, what is the best chance we have for survival in this situation. And so based off of that, our once we go outside of our window of tolerance, our typically, and this is not always true, but we'll say typically, our body will sort of try fight like something from sympathetic um, nervous system. So let's say, you know, someone is about to attack you, your body will decide, am I like, is it better to flee? Or is it better to try to fight them? And without a conscious thought, we will do that. And the reason it's our thought isn't necessarily conscious is because the top of our brain, our prefrontal cortex and our cortex in general, um, the blood flow stops going there so we can respond quickly, which is amazing, honestly, that our body can do that. You know, that's actually a huge gift. Um, however, and I'll talk about the hypoarousal in a second, it, what's hard is that if our body isn't able to move through the thing that felt threatening, so it gets stuck, um, that's what becomes trauma. And, and so uh, again, white knuckling keeps trauma in its stuck, basically. It doesn't allow the thing that, you know, if a car's about to hit us and then we suddenly move, um, our body is actually processing that. We're like, oh, I'm good. I moved through it. But like, let's say you're in a situation where, um, you know, you tried to move, but you got hit and then um, a bunch of complications happened. That's something that could then turn into trauma. So with, with what you're saying with the, um, the, the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, that's typically thought of as the hypoarousal or a form of dissociation. Um, Basically, we go from our window of tolerance and maybe we try the fight or flight and that doesn't work. Our body decides the best way to keep us alive is a form of dissociation. And, and so that's really what the parasympathetic nervous system, it's, it's really based in our, our vagus nerve. Um, and it's the idea that we are our body recognizes that these other strategies aren't working. So it's like, well some level of dissociation is going to best get us through this situation. So you could see how, like, for example, as a child, if you grow up in a home in which you're constantly being threatened, if you think about the resources a child has, good luck fighting, right? Good luck fleeing. You need your, you literally have to have where you live as a form of survival. And so dissociation is really common for people who've experienced childhood trauma. Um, obviously, as you know, I wrote a whole, there's like so much, and I only wrote a chapter on a lot of these things, but there's so much research out there. But I think the important thing for your readers to understand is that, readers, sorry, your listeners, um, your listeners to understand is that our body is constantly making decisions based off of, of how to, get us through situations. But when we have a history of trauma, um, both big T trauma or little t trauma, so PTSD or just accumulated situations that we never processed, um, some of the way our nervous system responds can get skewed because our body might think 
that we are still in that previous trauma. And so something that isn't actually unsafe can begin to, we can act like maybe for me, for example, as a survivor of childhood, you know, trauma, um, if I'm not doing work and if I'm not processing that, um, I might react to a coworker as though I'm a younger me who's dealing with the difficult and threatening dynamics in my family. Mm. So that coworker then becomes a different character. They become a person from your past, whether yeah. it's a family member or, and not even that you see them that way, but you respond to them. In, yeah. In the like way. a lot of trauma is stored in our right brain. And what happens with our right brain is we actually can't tell the difference between past and present. And so it's not so much that we're like, I, it's not a conscious thought. Like I feel 10 now. Like you might, if you reflected on that, you might feel that way, but it's that our body, we could call that a body memory. Our body is experiencing the moment from the lens of the old trauma. And so, you know, going back to try softer and, and, and this whole perspective, this whole perspective is about helping keep our brain integrated. So our prefrontal cortex online in our window of tolerance, because our prefrontal cortex is only online when we're in that window. And that allows us to sort of what I call reparent those, those lower parts of our brain that are activated and wounded. And we can, that keeps us in the present. It keeps us connected to what's true and, and not just true, but um, those things that are actually helpful to us as we are going through those difficult things. So we have a sort of what's called a dual awareness. We can hold the past with its pain and we can hold the present that says that I'm capable of writing a new story about this situation. So I had this whole notebook of questions, and um, now that I've got like a whole other notebook of questions to ask you after after that, I so one of the people that I quote often and have been influenced by is Dallas Willard, and uh, he has a saying about the the life of discipleship is about training and not trying, mm-hmm. and that we we train ourselves to do what Jesus has asked us to do. Mm-hmm. We don't simply try harder to do that. So I'm wondering how how do you see trauma affecting the way people try harder mm. in a way in in practicing their faith specifically how they approach the questions of God and self in light of whether it's church attendance or practice like how does trauma impact that particular part of our lives Yeah I love that question um you know I think one of uh, I think there's there's a lot of different ways, but probably the most prevalent that I see is through that lens of attachment that we kind of already touched on. And so, you know, this idea that because every relationship, including our relationship with God, is affected by our attachment style. And so what that means is, is that we have a literal neurobiological template in our body that 
it sort of predicates how we interact with different people in our life, but also how we interact with God. So the way that we, so like, let's say just using it from a more general idea, like let's say we have an insecure attachment and that insecure attachment really at its core, we could call that, that's a, those, that's a form of little t trauma, first of all. So I think that's important to, to just, to clarify because we're talking about a form of trauma and it's really relational trauma. It's essentially about not having your needs met at very vulnerable developmental times and not feeling as though we have the stronger nervous system of our caregiver to help us move through hard things and then how that affects us. So the reason I think this really ties in is ultimately one of the things that's so true about who God is to us is that God is a parent. God is, God is many things, but is God is absolutely the, uh, there's a sense of, um, that he's our greatest caregiver, that he's our provider. He's our, our safe place, our security, um, our giver of courage, our, I mean, so many things that really it's so attachment oriented. So let's say our view of God, um, or let's say our, our view of what it means to be cared about is that, um, it, it sounds great to be loved by someone, but what it comes down to is what you do for them. Or what it comes down to is that they will communicate to you with displeasure and fear and fiery stones, you know, like when you don't do what you're supposed to do, right? Because there's a sense in which we might know something to be true in a cognitive sense. Like we might be like, God is the giver of good gifts. And then the the neurobiological framework of template of our body is like, no, 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 it's not that easy. Nothing comes for free, sweetheart. You know, like there's a sense of like, you didn't do enough. You can't just receive love. Who do you think you are? Mm. Um, so what I, what I want to connect there is this idea that this attachment template, I believe is a huge part of how we experience God, and even the theology we're attracted to. Um, there's a lot of theology out there that feels really familiar to people who grew up with insecure attachments. And it feels right often because we grew up with it. We lived it. This is like what's, this is the story our body holds. And so when we interact with it, um, it feels easy to, to repeat it, to live in it. Um, and, but what's so hard about that is it creates this cognitive dissonance. Like, wait, but God, like you say, you love me and it's, you know, it's unconditional and you're with me, but that's not how it feels. And I can't receive it and I can't live it out and I can't access it in my deep pain because you know, this is where I would say that deep work matters so much and where there is no separation between a lot of this stuff. This isn't like we're spiritual beings and then we're physical beings. Like, no, 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 we're just beings. <laughs> and this stuff all integrates and it all over overlaps. Yeah. I love that you say in the book that there, that trying there's a physiology of trying softer because it does 
it is our bodies, it is our minds, it is our relational and spiritual lives. It sounds as if dealing with trauma is a is a kind of conversion in a way that, mm. and maybe not in the strict, in a strictly systematic theological sense, which that's fine. <laughs> uh, but it sounds as if like our us truly engaging in a wise life with Jesus is going to require us seeing our own presuppositions about what is wise mm-hmm. and where is that coming from? Yeah. Um, maybe it makes a lot of sense to us that God would be punitive and petty and judgmental and um, unstable because mm. our father is just like our father. Mm. And mm-hmm. so how do, how do we, how do we determine discern between those two is a big thing. I also wonder, do you see a distinction in how different how different genders mm. engage the concept of trying softer. Is mm. there a different approach for men and women? Uh, That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I find that, you know, just the word softer, <laughs> if a, if a man to be, it, this is just my experience, isn't already engaged in some emotional awareness. It's just not necessarily something he's going to be drawn to. And, and I want to be careful because that's a pretty broad, you know, generalization. But what I find is that there's a level of emotional awareness that there's even maybe something not quite right <laughs> that's required, I would say, from, a, from a, the male side um, because it's so stereotyped that, like, why would even a man be talking about softer, right? Like that, almost like there's like... Um, you're not, if you're even thinking about that, like in some way it disqualifies you from this idea of what it means to be a man. And so I would say what I see is more how difficult, what are the barriers that keep either a man or a woman from engaging the practice? And I think what I would say is that the barriers are different. Um, in the sense of for men, you know, anger is often praised, lust is praised, um, various types, like there are certain emotions that are praised and that's it. Um, and so I would say that's a, that's a barrier because Trisofter calls us to acknowledge and befriend our whole experience. You know, um, for me as a, a woman, I would, I would say, I think sometimes women here will softer. I'm so tired of women being told that we just are da 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 da. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> this is, there's a sense in which trying softer, I think the compassionate attention is so important because, you know, I have a whole chapter that's all about boundaries. And let me tell you what, boundaries require courage. <laughs> um, I have had to live this. What, one of my favorite quotes, and I wish I knew who said it, and I say it, you know, it's in the book, but it's, you are not required to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. And this has been a really encouraging quote to me for some time because my experience in my family is that I was not allowed to, and this was mostly implicit, but to honor my, ex, like my experience was secondary to all the chaos and trauma going on. And so my whole adult life has been coming home to myself to recognize that. And let me tell you, it takes some fire 
<laughs> to have the courage to say, this is what is needed, right? So I guess what I would say is that while the, the overall goal is the same, someone might already have that fire and the boundary. And what they need is maybe more gentle, maybe to really cultivate the gentleness. Whereas with other people, it might be everything. <laughs> with other people, it might be, you know, really needing the fire and that opens up the safety to feel gentle. So I think I, so to answer your question, I would say, I believe it's a tool for all of us. And I think we get, we need to assess in what way am I disconnecting from myself? In what way am I unable to hear the heartbeat of what's really going on with me? And then how can I better support that part of my story? Hmm. Man. I have so many things I want to ask, but we're out of time. But I wanted to ask one more thing. Yeah. And and this is, I think, a little bit touchy, but I'm wondering, the conversation about Try Softer, how does it integrate with this cultural moment that we're in, mm-hmm. where there is a lot of... And I, I told my wife today, I was kind of, I was walking around the house and I was kind of, you know, that grumble under your breath kind of thing. And she said, what, what's going on with you? I'm like, I opened Twitter this morning and I shouldn't have done that. And <laughs> so uh, in this cultural moment where there's a lot of accusation about how people are dealing with trauma and accusations of weakness or... Uh, you know, false, falsely claiming that something's traumatic or that everything is a quote unquote trigger. How, how does the try softer conversation enter into a cultural moment Hmm. that is both personal and also corporate? So as you bring this to people, how do you see it engaging with their whole, you know, Hmm. their Twitter psychology? world? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much nuance, right? Because I think it's hard. Like, like, I don't think we get to name what's a trauma for somebody else, but I think I hear what you're saying in the sense of weaponizing certain things. I think my, you know, my conviction is that this is a, this is an invitation for us as a church and frankly, a culture to do the deeper work that's required to be with ourselves so we can actually be, be with each other. And again, it, you know, coming back to that reciprocal, like the, the reciprocity piece of relationship, there's so much interesting neuroscience about just even the reality that if I'm cut off from my emotions, for example, I quite literally am cut off from empathy for other people. So if I am not doing my own work, I cannot be with what you're experiencing. Um, at the same time, if I'm overwhelmed by my emotions, if I'm flooded by my trauma, I, I literally don't have the bandwidth or the space to be with anything that you're dealing with. And so I think that this holistic lens of saying all of us matter, and yet there's a sense in which it's not that I matter more, but I, I am responsible for my limits. I'm responsible for, you know, this is again, why this boundaries piece matters so much of knowing like, Hey, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed today. Twitter is probably not good for me right now. Right. Um, or, 
this, you know, even for me as a therapist, like in this stage of life and these things, this is the type of caseload that I can um, handle and do really well. And after that, it's actually no longer helpful to me or my clients. And so I need to be mindful of that. And so I think there's lots of implications for the question that you're asking. But a part of what I would love to see is there's this sense of instead of being like, oh, I got on Twitter again. Sorry, I keep using your example. But, and I'm using this more in a wider spread of like anything that we do that we don't like that we say, oh, you know, this invitation to compassion for ourselves, um, knowing that God is deeply compassionate for us, that allows us then to do what we need to do to regulate. Maybe it's connecting with someone or it's prayer or it's some embodiment um, exercise. And then we have a deeper well to say, okay, world, you're still hurting. What do I have to offer the world? What space can I offer? And I'm just one person. And so it doesn't have to be for everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it does, I don't have to fix everything. Um, but that's what I have to offer. And so, yeah. So I just think it's really an invitation for us to do deeper work. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, the gift of, of walking people through trauma and the ability to do it and the ability to bring your own story to it mm -hmm. and in a way that's powerful and compelling and it's the inner experience and inner authority that I think people need and are, are craving mm -hmm. when they're in a spot like that too. So thank you for that and for the book. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad people got to hear from you today. Oh, thanks so much. I loved our conversation. hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andy Colbert. Man, so much good stuff in there. And I want to apologize. In the last like minute and a half, um, the furnace in our house kicked on and I thought I had turned it off. Uh, but that's the choice of recording a podcast in your house and not in some studio. Uh, but hopefully that wasn't too distracting. Uh, I wonder, as you were listening to Andy, as you heard her weave together the fact that our brain is as much a part of our spiritual life as anything else and the way that we deal with our emotions is such a huge part of that i wonder what did you hear god inviting you to uh, especially in relationship to maybe a trauma that you're dealing with this year what did what questions what invitations did you sense coming out of this conversation specifically to think more about how your brain is processing your life right now is there are there some things you need to learn or need to read are there some things that some conversations you need to have or Maybe there's some things that you need to explore again that you left in the closet in the dark because you just didn't want to touch them. My prayer is that Andy's Try Softer conversation has invited you, has brought you back to processing through some of those things in this new year. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you are listening on iTunes, uh, please rate and review. That would be wonderful. Share this with people if you enjoyed it or if you think they might need it. We are also now on Spotify as well as streaming through my website, kctigret.com slash podcast. That link will be in the show notes. Uh, also, if you'd like to read more, uh, please pick up Andy's book, Try Softer, that launches today, 
brand new, uh, get that copy today. And also if you want more on memories, uh, you can check out my book, as I recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life on Amazon or wherever you get your fine books. And so my friends, until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace, friends.